Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. Today's episode is dedicated to Olivia Rojas and Valeria Espinel, two Notre Dame first-year students gone too soon. My thoughts and prayers go out to their loved ones. And I'd like to dedicate this next moment of silence in devotion to their memory. In today's episode of HTIL, we are going to be talking about recovery and relapse. And these are two things that we had kind of talked about in the past two episodes because we had talked about my experience with recovery and my experience with relapse within quarantine, which was more of a recovery space for me, and then in college, which has proven to be a little bit of a relapse space. So we're kind of going to combine these two things in a more comprehensive outlook to delve into further what recovery and relapse means for those who have suffered from or are still suffering from an eating disorder. Relapse amidst or after recovery is generally the rule rather than the exception for those struggling with an eating disorder. And in recovery, there's a whole lot that you need to address including medical or health concerns, including how to relearn normative eating practices, to eliminate disordered eating behaviors, to address co-occurring disorders if that is the case, such as anxiety disorders, OCD, panic disorders, things like that. You also have to set up some protective measures and a plan to prevent relapse and then potentially address unhealthy or conditional relationships that have worsened your eating disorder. In recovery, you have to figure out what a life worth living means for you. And this is a complete reconstruction of your life and of your identity. And it's incredibly demanding. It's incredibly time-demanding. Emotionally, it's demanding. Physically, it's demanding. Yet, it's remarkable the work that is done during recovery. When we talk about recovery with those who have struggled with eating disorders, we can talk about a bunch of different modes of recovery. So we can talk about physical recovery, which means restoring your weight if that's needed, normalizing electrolyte and hormone levels, resuming menstruation if that's applicable, and some with longer-term or more severe eating disorders in their past, unfortunately, might not be able to reverse all health consequences, but other areas will be readily addressed. And this kind of speaks to the irreversibility of an eating disorder. You won't ever forget it, but you have the ability to gain so much more in recovery than what you lost before, both metaphorically and literally. 
And I know that firsthand. Another mode of recovery is behavioral. And this includes the ceasing or reduction in behavioral food restriction, over-exercise, purging, binge eating, if that's applicable. Although I personally believe that recovery must not involve any restriction in eating behaviors and that you must honor all hunger cues, both physical and mental. So binge eating could perhaps be necessary in the recovery because your body is trying to restore that weight. But it depends on the individual, of course. And these behavioral modes of recovery might take the form of a meal plan for one person or more flexible eating patterns for another. It might also manifest itself in a newfound active social life or engaging in more solitude or privacy. So these things differ based on the person who has struggled and they are individualized in that way. You also have psychological as a mode of recovery where you would address the cognitive and emotional aspects of the eating disorder, including body image distress, perfectionism, rules or regimen around eating your weight. And then at this stage, co-occurring disorders will also be addressed. And mood, anxiety, panic disorders, OCD will need to be managed and addressed in order to sustain lasting recovery from an eating disorder. And then finally, you also will need to address a relational mode of recovery, and this speaks to a support system that is necessary during this time, whether that's friends, family, counseling, online support, Um, because during recovery, often we need people around us to encourage seeking help, to encourage the use of coping skills, especially during difficult meals or bad body image days, and to build a life outside of the eating disorder and outside of even the eating disorder recovery for survivors. Recovery looks different with each eating disorder and each individual person healing. And some modes may take precedence over others or be prioritized above others, yet all are generally addressed at some point. Recovery can also take the form of residential or in-person treatment yet it can also be outpatient treatment as well. So you have like more residential intensive care versus outpatient treatment. And neither is more valuable nor valid than the other. I believe that healing in any form is progress, whether that is in a residential facility, in a more intensive, higher level of care, or that's outpatient. And additionally, there's no set, defined, concrete amount of time required for recovery. You have to ask the question, what does life worth living mean for you? And finding meaning and finding worthiness of life does not have an expiration date, nor an allotted amount of time devoted to such. In fact, I believe that this quest is lifelong. The relative success of recovery differs with different eating disorders. And when I talk about success of recovery, you know, we kind of refer to the probability of one relapsing amidst or after recovery. 
there's not really like a binary of success or failure within recovery, so it's hard to define in this way, but just consider that this section of of this episode kind of just talks about what the probability is of one relapsing. There is a study initiated in 1987 and published in 2005, which is entitled Post-Remission Predictors of Relapse in Women with Eating Disorders. And it studied um, patients with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa and the relapse rates occurring in both of those groups. Um, So relapse occurred in 36% of the women with anorexia nervosa and 35% of the women with bulimia nervosa. Clearly, they're they're pretty on par there. And women with anorexia nervosa restricting subtype tended to develop bulimic symptoms during relapse, whereas women with anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype or bulimia nervosa tended to return to bulimic patterns during relapse. So overall, the pattern is there's about like 35, 36% of those who suffer from an eating disorder that will relapse amidst or after recovery. And that relapse normally takes the form of either developing or returning to bulimic patterns and bulimic symptoms during relapse. And this can mean binge eating, this can mean purging, this can mean, you know, any kind of overexercise or um, self-induced vomiting, which is considered in the purging overall category. Now, this study was 15 years ago and only looked at two eating disorders. And now we know we have nine di- different designations of eating disorders. So take it with a grain of salt for sure. Um, but just kind of an interesting attribute of the study was how both those with anorexia and those with bulimia tended to engage in bulimic compensatory behaviors in relapse. And this the results from the study kind of explain the long-term efficacy of interpersonal therapy for both and overall suggest that focused body image work and body image in like constructing a more positive or even a neutral understanding of your body during relapse can help enhance long-term recovery from eating disorders. And the highest risk in relapse for those who have struggled with eating disorders is in the first 18 months after treatment, so in the first year and a half after treatment, that's when these individuals are at the highest risk for relapse. And then another study that I'd looked at in my research preparing for this episode was published in July of 1999, so 21 years ago. And it was an eight-year, I think like a seven-and-a-half-year, eight-year follow-up study for those who had had bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa and the findings suggest that the course of anorexia is characterized by high rates of partial recovery and low rates of full recovery while with bulimia it's characterized by higher rates of both partial and full recovery this is not the rule (laughs) to say that if you have anorexia you're gonna only partially recover 
and not fully. And if you have bulimia, you might be able to fully recover. This study, again, was done 21 years ago, and there's been a whole lot of learning in those 21 years about eating disorders, recovery, relapse, all of those things. So again, take this one with a grain of salt too, but it just kind of presented some interesting findings in terms of the quote-unquote success rates of those who are recovering from an eating disorder. In maintaining recovery, it's really, really difficult and, like I said, is requires a ton of energy, a ton of time, and everyone has the potential to recover fully, yet it's not always the reality, which is very unfortunate. And this is often not the patient's fault. It can involve an expansive range of issues, including lack of access to treatment, barriers to healing, imperfect or regressive treatment, sociocultural obstacles such as weight bias, discrimination against those in larger bodies, or for people of color. So clearly there's a lot of barriers to the maintenance of recovery that need to be addressed more fully as we continue on to learn more about eating disorders and what they require in terms of recovery. And for those who have gone through it, with or without the barriers in their way, It is known to most who have gone through it as one of the hardest things that you'll ever experience, yet the most rewarding. Like I mentioned before, the maintenance of recovery and long-term recovery and full recovery, what's necessary to those things is addressing co-occurring disorders, addressing comorbidity if that is applicable to you. And these these studies, these comorbidity studies identified the disorders that are likely to proceed and co-occur with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, ARFID, OFSED, any of these eating disorders, and may complicate the treatment of those eating disorders. But it's necessary to address those things in relation because, as we've talked about before, a lot of these co-occurring disorders are very much entangled with and very much walk hand-in-hand with that of eating disorders. And then we can also look at the types of treatment that are offered for people who have struggled with eating disorders from the 2000s and beyond. um, Eating disorder treatment kind of embraced a more holistic template that addresses multiple approaches. So medical, physiological, nutritional, psychological, emotional, relational, all of these things. And there's this new treatment model um, that's called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, which kind of combines skills from cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, so CBT and DBT, which are the most popular, and combining all of these principles, it can provide the theoretical framework to understand what processes to help people heal. And this focus also addresses the need for a support system, as we talked about before, relationally as as a mode of recovery. So it focuses on caregivers and support systems as the agents of change in their commitment to those who are recovering. There's also many stages of therapy and of recovery. There's the pre-contemplation, which is the disbelief of an, 
of an issue of an eating disorder. You deny needing help. This was me for four years in high school. And then the contemplation, that's the second stage, where you finally do admit having had an eating disorder and you are open to receiving help. For me, this came in the form of writing a poem for my English class, for an English assignment, and being able to literally utter the phrase eating disorder or anorexia in front of people and to myself, most importantly. And then the third stage is preparation. So this is when the individual is ready for change, but they need guidance and to develop coping skills, boundary setting, potential barriers, tend their personal needs, a plan of action is developed for receiving therapy. And this is a stage where you identify triggers, you mitigate for protective measures against them. And I would consider myself in the preparation phase probably... I would say contemplation phase phase for me reoccurred during the beginning of this year, actually. Yeah, so the beginning of this year, um, spring semester of my freshman year of college. And then preparation was also during the beginning of this year. And right now, I would consider myself in action. (laughs) Um, And this is just the implementation of the action plan that you would outline during the preparation stage. You employ a support system, which is crucial during this point. You try to remove triggers, you know, at first to make sure that you can fully, fully focus on your recovery um, and develop that action plan, put in place the action plan, and really devote your time to it. And then a fifth stage, so there's six stages. The fifth stage is maintenance and relapse. I would actually probably consider myself in this stage. Um, Preparation was probably during quarantine for me. Because preparation was beginning of this year. Action during quarantine. Right now, maybe I'm in maintenance relapse. I don't have like a clear, I mean, these are, you know, very limiting kind of narrow stages of recovery. So they overlap and the transition is not as clear cut as they imply, but the maintenance and relapse stage, the fifth stage, is a sustained action stage for approximately six months or longer, and you actively rehabituate new ways of thinking of yourself. You use your coping skills. You revisit potential triggers in order to prevent relapse. You construct new self-definitions of yourself. Like I had said before, you have to figure out what kind of life is worth living, and this is like a complete reconstruction of your life and your identity. And new adaptive behaviors are implemented at this stage. Also, relapse is possible at this stage, generally because of the unintentional or intentional reintroduction of triggers. So yeah, so I would consider myself at the maintenance and relapse phase. And then finally, a possible sixth stage. It's not necessary, but it's the discontinuation of treatment. And the questions that you need to ask yourself before entering into the stage are, Number one, have I mastered coping skills necessary to maintain maintain changes in my life? You need to look into relapse prevention and acknowledge that there's a plan in place if that does happen. And then you also need to ask yourself, are you willing to resume treatment in the future if it is needed? And if so, construct a plan for this as well. For me, One of the most profound modes of recovery and profound 
focuses in my recovery is through relationship. As I've said before, eating disorders demand isolation and they demand silence, which I believe is why an integral part of recovery is through kinship and companionship. Although you do not owe your progress to anyone, you fight against your eating disorder and the silence it demands when you invite others into your recovery. This relational work is critical, not only with yourself, where you hope to transform a deep shame into self-compassion and forgiveness, but also with others. Um, Family and friends can feel helpless when a loved one is steeped in in the throes of an eating disorder or trying to climb out of one and of their mind in a way. But those two things are critical. When you do relational work with yourself, you're forced to confront dark parts of yourself, which is pretty terrifying and anxiety-inducing, and you need to combat the familiar, predictable, comfortable, almost critical self-talk or negative self-talk or unhealthy, restrictive behaviors with food. And you have to radically be with yourself, which is a completely new thing, but it's something developed through mindfulness. You have to separate from your pain, yet acknowledge it and develop a communication with yourself and those dark parts. And then, like I said, with others, ruptures in relationships have no doubt occurred. And you will need to restructure this foundation in some relationships. You also might need to set boundaries for some relationships if it's not conducive to your healing and your recovery, or consider, you know, forming new relationships or healing old ones in a recovery-focused space, which can be incredibly beneficial for life after recovery because the goal during recovery is to build a life after. And during all of this relational work, you have to know not only... I mean, you do know like what you are recovering from. You are recovering from an eating disorder, body image issues, etc. But you also have to consider who or what you are recovering for. If it's just for yourself, that's enough. But there could be other things in addition. So this intentionality with recovery is also very important. One of the things that I had the hardest time dealing with is making peace with weight change during recovery. As you guys know, it's the title of this podcast, Heavier Than I Look. And during recovery, actually not even really during recovery, actually uh, a little bit. Who knows? Because I didn't have a scale for the longest time. But (laughs) I don't really know in terms of my weight gain or weight loss during recovery. But I definitely did gain weight. I definitely did lose weight and gain weight through the course of my eating disorder and in recovery. So weight change in general was really difficult for me to come to terms with. It still is. Generally with eating disorders, you have to restore your weight. Your body has to use food that you're putting in it to reconstruct body tissue, which has been lost. It can start to repair organs, bones, muscles, joints cells, blood, skin, hair, nails, hormones. 
So you have to generally undergo like a weight restoration meal plan. And there are some really just uncomfortable symptoms related to that, which can include bloating in the stomach, in your face, kind of like a swollenness in your wrists, in your ankles, you can headaches, you can have headaches, low blood sugar, night sweats, increased anxiety. So clearly, and this list is not exhaustive, but there's a lot of discomfort that can be really, really challenging in weight restoration and in weight change in general. But your body is getting used to regular nutrition again. It's important to note that leaving treatment, whether that is inpatient or outpatient, before the body has has had an opportunity to stabilize its weight, means that even slight dips or or gains in weight change can leave someone in an unhealthy weight range for their body and an unhealthy mental state as well. So it's really important that your body has the opportunity to stabilize weight before you decide to forego treatment. And what has helped me during this time is a couple of things. And I'm going to share them here today. Number one, Celebrate your body. Our bodies are more than fluctuation, more than gains or losses. Celebrate what they do and not how they appear. There's been this kind of counter movement called body neutrality, which is a departure from body positivity. And it's definitely interesting for me. I found that body positivity has helped me more than body neutrality. Um, Body positivity is like the overt celebration of our bodies for how they look. And body neutrality is just kind of foregoing any recognition of how our bodies appear physically. Um, I just have noticed that body positivity in its extreme forms has helped me because disliking your body for so long I feel like I need to like overcompensate a little bit to then reach a middle point so maybe body neutrality is in the future for me but as of right now I practice body positivity as much as possible it's different for every person so this is not a recommendation necessarily but just be able to consider um, intentionally what might work best for you And through this celebration, I also try to counter negative thoughts with positive ones as much as I can. What's really helped me during recovery is letter writing. As you guys saw a couple episodes back, I I think this was two episodes back. This is episode six, which is eating disorders on college campuses. I wrote a letter to myself as a freshman in college, and I'm a huge letter writer. Love them. Love to give, love to receive them. And what really helped me during recovery is writing like a letter of gratitude to your body. And it doesn't even have to be to your body. It can be to your old self or old selves at each stage in your eating disorder or in recovery. And again, this is part of that intentional creating a communication system, creating a two-way 
street between you, your body, your mind. Like there a lot of relational work to be done in that arena. I also, during my recovery and even during when I was struggling with binge eating and like gaining a ton of weight, I was very mindful of my clothing because as you guys know, clothing can be very triggering. And although during recovery, even if you're trying to restore your weights, you might have to give up your favorite pair of jeans. Take the time and take the money to gift yourself a new one, even if it is a size up. It's really, really, really hard to get rid of that piece of clothing because it holds memory. It holds, you know, who you once were or what you once looked like. But trust me, <laughs> just just get rid of them. <laughs> Donate them, give them to a friend, but definitely get rid of them if you feel like they are going to be triggering. It's one piece of clothing is not worth relapsing. Just as you want to change the dialogue between you and your body, you also want to change the dialogue between you and others. So instead of you know, focusing on all of the negative parts or focusing on that critical self-talk and trying to to counter that. I mean, you do definitely do want to counter that with more positive thoughts, but just in general, be positive about your body or practice body neutrality, but also our culture, I think, needs a shift away from obsession about physical appearance. So instead of like change your greeting, instead of saying, oh my goodness, you look so good. Why not? You look so happy or like I'm really, really grateful to be able to see your smiling face. I think that would mean a lot to someone instead of the, oh, you look so good or you look like this or you, you know, instead just be compliment their happiness and compliment their presence in your life. So communication, as you guys have seen at this point, is vital in recovery in all, in all forms, with yourself, with others, with your body. If your body wants to move, move. If it wants to rest, rest. And finally, if it wants to eat, eat. And then finally, what has really helped me is specifically in the last couple of weeks, after I created the Instagram for Heavier Than I Look, I kind of inundated myself with messages of body positivity or body neutrality in the eating disorder community online. And let me tell you, that community is strong. You do not realize how many people are in that community until you log onto Instagram and you see thousands of posts and thousands of followers, and thousands of messages of support and love. And it's really great because, as you guys know, we are bombarded with screen messages all day, and just to have a couple positive ones in there is very helpful. I know there are a lot of places on Instagram and on Facebook and different other social media platforms 
in order to make a healthy space for yourself to get support from people online, which has been an integral part of my own recovery as well, specifically during the last couple of weeks. Now we're kind of going to talk about the other side of the coin. So we talked about recovery. We talked about relapses a little bit, but we're going to dive into relapses a little bit more. And relapses happen when an eating disorder survivor resorts back to engage in disordered eating habits, such as obsessing about their weight, restricting their intake, calorie counting, facing extreme shame surrounding eating behaviors, the rearrival of negative thoughts regarding body size, your weight, what you're eating. Some warning signs include skipping meals or having rigid eating patterns, withdrawal, extreme fatigue because our bodies may not be giving may not be given the proper nutrition, daily weighing, mirror checking to look for problem areas, a desire to isolate especially with eating, less openness to discussing recovery efforts. Changes in weight after treatment, increased need for control over exercise might play a role. So clearly there are a ton of warning signs. Not only can these warning signs be detected in yourself, but if you have friends who you are a part of their support system, these may be things to look for, especially with regard to stressors that may happen in that person's life because Stressors can trigger relapses and they are often unforeseen and they're often incredibly overwhelming for the survivor. And these things can include college, moving, a change of employment, whether you lose your job or you gain a new one, financial instability, pregnancy, parenthood, infertility, marriage, divorce, or any kind of relational change, a death of a loved one a diagnosis of an alternate disorder or disease, menopause also, or any kind of physical injury or lessened mobility. So clearly there are a ton of things to just keep track of, whether that's in your own recovery or in another's, but just you know keep those in the back of your mind. And always, always, always feel free to open a conversation with me. I'm willing to be that support system for anyone who needs it any one of our listeners who needs it. So please feel free to to reach out to me if you feel like you might be um, falling into old destructive behaviors and I will be there for you. It's important to, to note that not every momentary negative thought is quote unquote a relapse as such negative thoughts and feelings will no doubt permeate the rest of our lives Yet this is the continuation of such thoughts or disordered eating habits for a period of time and might signal a greater need for help. And in recovery and in relapse discussions, a lot of eating disorder treatment centers um, distinguish between the different like types of relapse. So they outline lapse, relapse, and collapse. So these three categories are not rigid, but they may help distinguish between the different types of recovery and relapse and also the different levels of care that are needed after such incidents. 
So a lapse is a thought or isolated incident, but it is containable. It's got to be confronted with self-compassion and one might refer to a relapse prevention plan and mobilize support around them. So this is a lapse. And then a relapse are longer episodes during times of stress or transition, as we had mentioned before with all of the stressors. And it should be met with increased support and structure for individuals. And this is where the relapse plan of action comes into play. So pull that thing out, read it again, and mobilize support around you. And then finally, collapse, where intervention may be necessary and it may lead to a higher level of care necessary for that individual. There's nothing wrong with that. But those are just the three kind of designations that we might term relapses within recovery from an eating disorder. Relapses may be more likely given the duration or severity of the eating disorder or the older someone is during the onset of the eating disorder, and also the different types of treatment. So those treated in an ED clinic are less likely to relapse than those not, or the occurrence or reoccurrence of negative or stressful life events. So there is higher probability given these things. You are deserving of a happy life despite relapsing. It is not a sign of failure. It is, it is instead a sign of being human. And it's a, it's a challenge to prove to your ED how resilient you are, to fight against your mind where the eating disorder exists for your life. And during these moments of relapses, managing relapses, I kind of wanted to include a section here to kind of address how we might manage a relapse. And there's a bunch of different options. Number one is to see a professional. Even if this is a free source online like NEDA, National Eating Disorders Association, they have a ton of support systems online that you can reach out to Or if you have a professional counselor or therapist that you might like to see, definitely do that. You also could tell a trusted individual, whether that be a family friend or a family member, a friend. Again, I am willing to be that person for anyone who needs it. That's not to say that you have to reach out to me to explain your situation, but I will be there for you if you feel the need to. And the best way to connect is through Instagram. And then also just challenge yourself to, when struggling with a relapse, to be nutritionally responsible, to fuel your body so that you can make it through the exhaustion that accompanies relapse. Again, this might include meal plans or it might include a more flexible eating pattern or intuitive eating pattern, depending on the individual. And also just continue to say affirmations. Remind yourself of your worth and why you deserve recovery. One of the things that you can do during this point is write a letter to yourself about why you deserve recovery and what you would like life to look like afterwards. What's helped me is also staying away from triggers, whether that's a mirror, the scale, 
certain articles of clothing, certain locations, certain people perhaps. So stay away from those triggers and replace them with self-care, with me time, with different positive adaptive behaviors to engage in within that space between the disordered urge and the disordered behavior that would result in a relapse. And let your body overall feel something pleasant. This is something we had talked about in episode three with triggers and trauma, but this might take the form of journaling, of listening to music, of finding inspirational social media accounts or poetry, practicing yoga or gentle movement, coloring, watching a favorite movie, picking up a new book, taking a bubble bath, or my favorite as I talked about the 10-finger gratitude count. So any of these things longer term is letting your body feel something pleasant amidst a really unpleasant, uncomfortable feeling of relapse. So that is all we have today in terms of recovery and relapse. Definitely some some interesting things to talk about, and I feel like kind of wrapped up the three chapters that we have talked about in the last three episodes. We talked about eating disorders on college campuses, which was a moment of relapse for me. We talked about eating disorders in quarantine, which was a moment of recovery for me, and now just an overall comprehensive look at recovery and relapses for those in recovery from an ED. And then, as you guys know, every single episode, I like to share a piece of art or insight to amplify the voices of those recovering from any kind of mental illness or an eating disorder. Um, And today, I picked out a quote from Glennon Doyle, who is a New York Times bestselling author and activist. And recently, I think it was in 2020, she published a memoir titled Untamed. And in that memoir, one of her quotes was, the only thing that was ever wrong with me was my belief that there was something wrong with me. I'm going to say it one more time. The only thing that was ever wrong with me was my belief that there was something wrong with me. Although she may not have been discussing, discussing a struggle with an eating disorder, I believe that this is a universal truth of all humans. One that I specifically struggle to come to terms with within myself. In recovery, I I remember during quarantine, I was, you know, doing telehealth and my counselor at the time had said to me, "There's, there's nothing wrong with you, Kira. And at the core of myself, I believed that there was. I believed an eating disorder was a wrong that I, that needed correcting And I believed my lack of self-control when it came to food or my weight was also a wrong, inherent, and unfixable. And I believed that because I was wrong, I did not deserve goodness nor healing. And when you let go of that thought that there's something wrong with you and therefore you don't deserve happiness or healing, you free yourself from the obligation of suffering, you prompt yourself to begin to heal. That's very, very liberating. I would try it. I would try saying that to yourself. And you release yourself finally from the belief that there's something wrong with you 
and you might believe that you are worthy of recovery. So say it with me. (laughs) There is nothing wrong with me. Once you say that time and time again, you might start believing that you're worthy of recovery. Even after a relapse, you are always worthy of recovery. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of an overview as to next week's plans. Because it's a bit of a promotion week for HTIL. Here's what we have going on. There's a couple different things. So all very exciting. On Tuesday evening, we have Notre Dame Day. And I'm just going to tell you guys a little bit of a story about this because it was very exciting for me personally. Last year, I got an email from one of the coordinators of Notre Dame Day, which is a fundraising. It's, it goes from like 6.42 p.m. to midnight on it's on a Monday and Tuesday of this week and it's kind of like a fundraising they do like four minute interviews of people all across campus of alumni of students of faculty and they do just you know quick little four minute interviews and they ask you about like the project you're working on or any kind of achievement and then they move on to the next person last year I had received an email from one of the coordinators of Notre Dame Day. And they said, hello, Kira. And I don't know how they knew this, to be honest with you. But they said, hello, Kira. We would like to reach out and ask if your dad would be willing to be a part of this Notre Dame Day broadcast. It will be live, in person. And we were wondering if your dad, who, as I've mentioned before, is a radio talk show host for sports programming. So they had asked if my dad would be willing to participate. And I had reached out to my dad. He was like, yeah, sure. The event was actually canceled because of COVID, because it was supposed to happen in April. And we were out of here by March. But this year, I think this is just like a week or two ago, I got an email from another coordinator of Notre Dame Day. And instead of saying, hey, Kira, can we get your dad on the broadcast? They're like, hey, Kira, can we get you? Which was kind of a full circle moment for me and super exciting. And I was shocked at the email, to be honest with you. But I was very excited to be given the opportunity to do this, even though it's only four minutes. I think... It'll be a very exciting opportunity for me to be able to share this podcast in a, in a greater light. And this is Tuesday, and my interview slot is at 8.49 p.m. 8.49 p.m. And I'll be on until 8.53 p.m. So if you have four minutes to spare, I would really appreciate the support. And tuning in, you can tune in at notredameday.nd.edu. I will also be sharing the live broadcast link on Instagram. So you can head over to Instagram at heavier than I look. So you can listen to the interview there as well. And again, if you have any interest in hearing about anybody else who's doing really exciting things on campus or outside of campus, Notre Dame Day 2020 will broadcast live on Monday, October 26th, 
and Tuesday, October 27th, running from 6.42 p.m. Eastern until midnight both nights. And then on Wednesday, the day after, (laughs) I will also be recording with another podcast entitled The Chat Connection Podcast, where I will share my eating disorder story again and in more depth. And more information will come about this, and I'm going to share more information about where to access this interview once we have recorded it, because it is, it, I don't believe it is live. So I, can, I will share the information here on this broadcast and then also on my Instagram as well, so at Heavier Than I Look. And then finally, Friday, actually not finally, <laughs> but Friday, I will be recording with Piecemeal Podcast which is run by the EMILY program and covers topics related to EDs, body image issues, and how society contributes to disordered thinking. And this piecemeal podcast interview was actually one I had scheduled months and months ago, but it's finally here, so I'm really thrilled to be doing it. And again, more information to come once we have recorded and once they have edited the podcast, I will make sure to give you guys information about where to access this interview and how to hear it for yourself. And you, if you are interested in this podcast, the Piecemeal Podcast, you can find it on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you, you find podcasts. And I will make sure to um, promote that information as well when the interview comes about. And then finally, on Sunday, a week from today, HTIL Episode 9 will be happening. And we are going to discuss some biological, neurological an evolutional basis or underpinnings of eating disorders, which I'm really excited to look at eating disorders from that lens specifically. So you can listen in next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And then lastly, the fi- like the first chapter of this podcast I view as the first 10 episodes, which kind of view eating disorders from specific scientific lenses that really delved into my story of dealing with eating disorders So this chapter kind of will be concluded in episode 10, which will be in November, and it's going to be a QA. and I don't know if it's going to last the full hour, but consider brainstorming questions that you might have for me to answer. No question is off limits, Um, but that will be episode 10 in November. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen to on any of these platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you are interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association NED website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come between that. Treatment did, and treatment still does. If you are in a crisis situation please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, 
please feel free to follow on Instagram at heavier than I look and on Twitter at HTIL podcast. And if you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message us on Instagram or Twitter. Do not be afraid to reach out. Do not hesitate. We would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversation surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, of recovery, and of storytelling. Finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and with sympathy. Goodbye for now, guys. See you next week.